This is Catholic Daily Brief. Episode 3. Do we have immortal souls? You might remember in the first episode we talked about natural apologetics and how there are three steps. The first one was seeing whether or not we can determine if God exists. The second one is do we have immortal souls? And the reason for that is once we establish that God exists, the next question arises, do I meet God? Is there something after this life? There's something after my death that I experience? Do I encounter God? Now, in what follows, the words soul and mind are kind of used interchangeably because the soul is traditionally just considered the rational, the intellectual part of a human being, that part that is or can be independent from the body. And while our mind uses and incorporates the physical brain, the argument to be made is that it is not dependent on it and that it can survive the death of the body and the death of the brain. So the reason we talk about this nowadays is because most people in the scientific community have a view called materialism. Materialism is the view that all that exists is matter. Everything in the world is just matter. There is nothing that transcends matter. There is nothing that is immaterial that exists. So everything that happens and everything that exists can be explained uh, in a material way and by means of the physical sciences. So for example, a materialist would say the mind is uh, a computer and that all of the experiences and the thoughts that we have really are just the product of the functions of the brain as a computer. But let's think about some of the phenomena that are used to argue as to why we believe we have an immortal soul, uh, an immaterial soul, something that is not physical, not material, and something that since it is immaterial or spiritual can survive the death of the body because something that is immaterial and spiritual does not corrupt and die as physical things do. So first of all, let's consider our ability to think abstract thoughts. That is not just imagine things that I can sense, but actually to think of things that I can't actually sense as particular things. So for example, the concept of justice or love I can think of all kinds of examples of someone acting justly or examples of a just person or uh, I can recall experiences of love and things like that. But my mind can do more than that. My mind can abstract or transcend all of those individual experiences and actually consider and understand something that I've never experienced in itself because it's just a concept. The concept of justice, the concept of love, the concept of truth itself. We can also think of things that we've never sensed, but we can understand uh, and even see through representation such as uh, like a circle or a triangle. Geometrically, a circle or a triangle is a plane figure 
you know, that can't actually be sensed. It doesn't have any extension, three-dimensional extension um, that we could sense or feel. We can draw representations of them in the world on chalkboards and on paper with ink and stuff like that. But a geometrical triangle and a geometrical circle, we never really experience them in actuality and in reality. We can't experience a plane figure as it is defined in uh, geometry. We can never experience a perfect circle. We can never experience a perfect triangle because there's always some deficiency. It's not perfectly round. The lines, of course, have uh, breadth, whereas a geometrical line doesn't have any breadth at all. But we can understand what a circle is. We can define a circle. We can define a triangle. We can define things that we can't actually experience. So our, our mind isn't just our imagination. It's not just the faculty that we have to represent images to ourselves. Think of, this is a thought experiment used by Dr. Edward Fazer, who I've mentioned before in past episodes. I can't imagine a thousand-sided polygon, a chiliagon. I can't imagine that. My, my mind just can't do that. It's really just something approaching a circle when I try to imagine it. But I can understand what it is. And I can understand a 999-sided polygon, which in my imagination would look pretty much the same as the chiliagon, but I can understand, I can conceive of the difference. My mind can do things that my imagination cannot. And my mind can consider things that cannot be perceived or have never been perceived. And so that shows that there's something that's not dependent on sense that we have within ourselves. And that's an important uh, thing to realize. Another phenomenon that we look to to prove the existence of the immaterial soul is our ability to reflect on ourselves, to be self-reflective. I can think about myself. I can think about thought. I can think about myself thinking about myself, etc., etc. Uh, that's hard to explain in materialist terms. If I'm simply a, a material being, it's hard to see how I would transcend myself like that and be able to consider myself, to in a way look at myself from the outside. And we'll see here just in a moment that uh, psychologists really have no way of satisfactorily accounting for this ability of being uh, self-aware and self-reflective. It's always kind of funny to me when people talk about the worry of you know, artificial intelligence progressing to the point where it becomes self-aware. There's no fear of that because it's in principle impossible. No material thing can just simply become self-aware. It's hard to imagine what kind of technological process would have to exist for something to all of a sudden take a leap where it can transcend itself, where a machine can transcend itself and reflect on itself. Now sure, technology can imitate the abilities and capacities of the human mind, but be at peace, uh, your computer is never going to overtake you. Well, it might, it might overpower you and destroy you, but it's not gonna do so while being self-aware. Now let's look at what science, uh, or prominent scientists, psychologists have to say about this so-called problem of self-consciousness or self-awareness. Here's some interesting quotes. There's a, a professor of philosophy and cognitive science named Dr. Jerry Fodor. He says, quote, nobody has the slightest idea how anything material could be conscious, end quote. There's another scientist named Dr. George Wald who won the Nobel Prize. He said, quote, the problem of consciousness tends to embarrass biologists. 
taking it to be an aspect of living things, they feel they should know about it and be able to tell physicists about it, whereas they have nothing relevant to say." End quote. Another, Dr. Nick Herbert, who's a physicist, says, quote, "...science's biggest mystery is the nature of consciousness. It is not that we possess bad or imperfect theories of human awareness. We simply have no such theories at all." End quote. Now, these are pretty startling admissions, but it's only a mystery, it's only an inexplicable problem when you're a materialist because obviously we have a better explanation for self-consciousness, self-awareness, and that is the soul, the immaterial, rational part of the human being. Now, to just drive home the absurdity of the materialist attempt to explain what we would explain by the existence of a soul, let me quote to you a little bit at length by, again, Dr. Fazer, where he lays out exactly what materialists think about our thoughts and our self-reflection, etc. This is from his book called Philosophy of Mind, and I recommend that you get that book. He says, quote, The idea is that any given mental state, your thought about your grandmother, the sensation of pain in your lower back, your memory of your last trip to London, is the exact same thing as the firing of such and such a clump of neurons in your brain. The theory is not that your thought is caused by such and such neurons firing, but that it is such and such neurons firing. Certain electrochemical signals are sent from one part of the brain to another, and that and only that is what constitutes a thought, feeling, or sensation. If you were able to peer inside someone's skull and somehow see the neurons firing, you would literally be looking at his or her thoughts." End quote. Now, we all recognize that as pretty absurd to think that just to be able to see the physical processes of the brain is to see someone's thoughts. It's simply not the case. Now, sure, you can look at someone's brain scan. You can say, depending on how it looks, like, oh, they are angry, or oh, they are dreaming, or oh, they are in deep thought. But to say that our thoughts, our deepest thoughts, our thoughts and memories and our abstract thoughts about life and love and truth, that those are merely reducible to firing of synapses in our brain is just absurd. Keep in mind all the quotes I just read about these scientists and biologists and psychiatrists, psychologists that really have no theories of human self-awareness and thought and its origin. If the materialist account of thought were true, then certainly science would be able to replicate thoughts by the manipulation of the brain, by the manipulation of the chemistry of the brain or whatever. But science, in principle, can't do this because it's just absurd to think that purely material things can at some point just become self-aware through some physical process. Here you see the bias that scientists bring into their study of the sciences where they will look for any explanation, even if it seems very implausible, which materialism seems very implausible, They'll do so just because they want to avoid the implications of another theory, such as uh, we have an immaterial part of us. What does that mean about a human being? What does that mean about what our life is about? What does that mean about our destiny, etc.? These are certainly questions they don't want to encounter. And so embracing any other explanation of human consciousness and thought is preferable to them. So how do we make the leap from we have an immaterial part of us to we have an immortal part of us. Well, the reason is that since our bodies are composite, since they're made up of different parts, at a certain point they begin to dissolve. There's a dissolution of our body that we call aging and death. An immaterial substance is simple in the sense that it doesn't have 
composite parts. It's not composed of parts. And if we have determined that there's a part of us that's not dependent on the physical parts of our body, it's independent from our body, that it can function independent of our body, and that it's not physical, the conclusion is that it can exist apart from the body. Now, this doesn't mean that it exists perfectly. We are body and soul. That is what a human being is, body and soul. And so at death, which is the separation of the soul from the body, the immaterial part of us surviving the death of the body, we are incomplete. And that, from a Christian perspective, is why the resurrection of the body is necessary. God created us body and soul, and so we are to be restored body and soul. We're not just souls floating around forever in a cloudy heaven or a fiery hell. We are body and soul, and we are intended to be complete as body and soul. So our soul can survive the death of our body, but it doesn't do so as a perfected being. It's still kind of the half of our substance. It exists on, it doesn't function the same way, and it will function perfectly only again when we receive our glorified bodies, God willing. So a few takeaways from this episode. The materialist explanation of our thoughts and experiences is not a satisfactory one. It doesn't seem to make much sense. In fact, it seems kind of absurd on the face of it. Our ability to think abstract thoughts, our ability to think about our thought, our ability to think about ourselves, our ability to understand things that we can't sense uh, are all signs that we have a part of us that's not totally dependent on the physical part of us. Self-consciousness stumps scientists, even those whose field is this field of uh, human thought. Our bodies and our souls are meant to go together. We will only be fully who we were meant to be when our body and soul are reunited. If you'd like to do some further personal study on this topic, please look at two of Dr. Fazer's books. One is The Beginner's Guide to Aquinas, and there's a chapter titled Psychology, and also Fazer's book called The Philosophy of Mind. Thank you once again for listening to Catholic Daily Brief. If these podcasts are helpful to you, please uh, subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and give us a good rating. God bless.